Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. So runs the profession of faith familiar to some two billion people worldwide. But who was Muhammad? Where did he come from? When did he live? And what can we as historians know about him? Tom Holland. Difficult questions, but a fascinating subject. It's such a fascinating subject, and it's one that... um I spent about five years of my life wrestling with. Yeah. Um, and I, to, to be honest, it, it was so challenging. It was kind of challenging intellectually, but also challenging because, of course, when you're writing about Muhammad, it's not like you're, you, you know, you're studying Nero or Alexander the Great. You're studying someone who is incredibly important to, as you said, two billion people. So you are dealing with very, very profound issues. Um, and so I felt slightly tense about returning to this subject, I've got to say, but I think it's in- incredibly worth doing because I-, I think it is fascinating in and of itself, but also because I think it raises really interesting questions about the relationship of history to belief, to the dimension of the supernatural, yeah. to all kinds of, of, of things like that. So um, really, I mean, we the idea that we're going to do this in under an hour seems <laughs> well, optimistic, I think, but I think we should try and do our best. We should do our best. Um, I mean, what's interesting is obviously uh Muhammad is clearly one of the you know two three four people who have most shaped the course of human history i mean if you if we did did you there was a book uh that was kind of like the hundred greatest the hundred most influential people oh yeah in yeah. history did you have that I, was, kind I, was of he number one he was number one and yeah. it was it was this kind of slightly mad book because I, I remember it had the Earl of Oxford he the guy who wrote it was convinced the Earl of Oxford oh really Shakespeare I did plays. a similar exercise but, when I was at school you know when I was about twelve we had to rank the uh, ten top people in history do you know who mine was um james callahan no it's martin luther that would appeal to you no anyway this is a bit of a sidetrack um muhammad so obviously neither of us are muslims no uh so we're approaching this it should be said at the outset for for muslim listeners we are approaching this from the 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 perspective of western non-believing historians aren't we because i remember when i began looking at this i kind of felt well i'm neutral because i don't believe this but of course, my position of non-belief is not a neutral position at all. No. And the assumptions that I, you know, I assume that an angel did not speak to Muhammad. I assume that the Quran is not of divine origin. And yeah. therefore, my understanding, I'm sure your understanding of Muhammad is predicated on that. But of course, that's not a neutral perspective at, at all. So no, I think it's, it's important to flag that up uh, before we before we start. There are a lot of very respected scholars of early Islam who are not themselves Muslims. I mean, we'll probably be talking about some of them uh, later in the program. Um, so people who are fascinated by the history of Arabia and by the, the the way in which Islam spread from its beginnings you know, across the Mediterranean world, across the Asian world and so on, but they're not necessarily themselves Muslims. So I think you can reasonably 
want to talk and write about it without being a, a, a believer yourself. Anyway, listeners will be the, the judge of that, I suppose. So why don't we start, since it's such fascinatingly uh, sort of mysterious but also contentious territory, why don't we start by you giving us a short kind of rundown for listeners who aren't familiar with the material of the traditional account of the life of Muhammad. So what do, you know, if I go into an encyclopedia, what, what am I going to find about Muhammad's life? So the context is the seventh Christian century, beginning of it. Um, it's uh, the, the context is um, a world where the Near East is divided between the two great superpowers of Persia and Rome. Rome, of course, now ruled from Constantinople. Um, Muhammad is born in a city called Mecca, which lies in an area of the Arabian Peninsula uh, called the Hejaz, um, a thousand miles from uh, from the Roman frontier in Palestine. Um, he is uh, a merchant. Um, he is married to uh, a woman who, uh, who who is herself a merchant. She he acts as her agent. Um, he c- comes to the age of forty. And, and 40 in antiquity is the, the, the it's the age where you have your midlife crisis and Muhammad has perhaps the most epical midlife crisis in history when he starts hearing voices and this unsettles him because hearing voices in uh, Mecca where he's growing up is is potentially a mark that you've been seduced by a demon but he gets reassured that actually he's being addressed by an angel angel Gabriel and, I think isn't it angel Gabriel and he is being hailed as the last of the prophets, the seal of the prophets. And he is stands in a line of descent going back through Jesus, through Moses, all the way to Adam. And his revelations are essentially the, 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 last, the last chance that humanity has to live according to God's rules. So Muhammad starts to say this. Lots of people in Mecca think he's mad, but some don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, among them is Khadija, his wife. Uh, and various other people start to rally around him. Um, Khadija dies, but Muhammad continues with his prophetic mission. And in time, um, hostility to his growing number of followers becomes such that he and his followers are forced to emigrate, to um, undergo what in Greek is an exodus and um, in Arabic is a hijra. And they go to uh, a town called Yathrib. So that's modern day Medina. Well, because it comes to be called, so Medina is a city, it comes to be called the city of the prophet. Um, And in Medina, Muhammad essentially, guided by these divine revelations, sets up um, a a community, a state. He he takes over the running of the city. He expels those or slaughters those who who do not um, subscribe to his teachings and his revelations. Um, He defeats the Meccans. uh, And by treaty, he is allowed back into Mecca and when he comes into Mecca, he topples the huge number of idols that exist everywhere. And he establishes Mecca, which um, reaches back a very, you know, to the beginning of time. It's been a holy place since since the origins of time. It's, it's, it's a shrine that was established by, um, by Abraham and his son Ishmael, uh, right back in the beginnings of time. And it's so Medina and Mecca are consecrated as these these two cities that are hallowed by the role that they play in the life of the prophet. He dies, but his followers then take his message out into the world and inspired by um, these revelations uh, that in time will be bundled together to, to form a, a single Quran, a single um, text of, of revelations. Um, people who come to be known as Muslims swallow the Persian Empire whole, dismember a huge chunk of the Roman Empire, spread westwards to uh, the Atlantic, spread eastwards as far as the gates of China. um, And the result is the Muslim world that we have today. Yeah, very good. And and, and so that is why, obviously, he can be voted the most influential human being who's ever lived. Well, that was a bravura performance, Tom. So we're talking a life that runs from about 570 to 632 or so, I think. Are those the conventional dates, aren't they? Right. Well, yes. But those dates are inevitably contested. Yeah. Be- because there are all kinds of um, historical questions that surround um, this this narrative. So we have, we have a question from Diogo Mugardo, 
who asks, what can be ascertained with some confidence about Muhammad's life? And that's a question to which there is a whole range of answers. And at one extreme, you have uh, people who say that the the traditional accounts can be completely trusted. Yeah. And at the other end, <laughs> you have people who say that basically we can't know anything about him. In fact, there are even some who argue that he didn't even exist. And the reason for that is that essentially, if we want a narrative account of Muhammad's life, we're dependent on texts that were first written down, um, or, or at least surviving texts that were written down. They date to about two centuries after the lifetime of Muhammad himself. So this is like Ibn Ishaq, is it? Uh, eighth century or so? Yeah. So there's a guy called Ibn Ishaq who lives at the um, the end of the eighth century, and he gets kind of redacted by a guy called Ibn Hisham. And that's the version that we have. That's the earliest kind of narrative account. So the question is, what is the relationship of those accounts of his life to the historical Muhammad? But there are fragments, aren't there, from the time? Um, so I've got a couple of them here. Uh, there's a Syriac fragment from 636. Many villages were ruined with killing by the Arabs of Muhammad. So that's from within the sort of Roman world. There's a guy called Thomas the Presbyter, who again mentions the Arabs of Muhammad, 640. And then the most famous one is from the 660s. So that's we're talking about what? What's that? About 30 years after Muhammad conventionally is said to have died. Now, this is by an Armenian bishop, and he tells the story. The sons of Ishmael, there's a guy uh, whose name was Muhammad, a merchant. He taught them to recognize the God of Abraham, especially because he was learned and informed in the history of Moses. He told them, love only the God of Abraham. Go and seize the land which God gave you to your father, Abraham. No one will be able to resist you in battle because God is with you. So that's those are sources that appear to yeah. allude to the Muhammad yeah. that we know, but they're written from outside the Muslim tradition. So these are guys who are maybe hundreds of miles away. There is one that seems to be written during Muhammad's own lifetime. And so if that's the case, then... Muhammad is the only founder of a great religious tradition of, of whom what that can be said. Well, that's a fascinating point. So in other words, Muhammad is far from Muhammad being, well, okay, we can talk about the, the sources about Muhammad, but, but what's clear, he's not unusual. I mean, Jesus, no. there are, there are virtually no sources from the life of Jesus, I think. No, there are no sources sort of... from Jesus' life, but there are sources. So we have Paul's letters that are written a decade or so after, and then the gospels are written a few decades after that. Yeah. Um, the, the problem is, is that we don't have the equivalent of Gospels. We don't have the equivalent of narrative lives of the prophet until much later. So it, it would be analogous to the kind of Gnostic Gospels that are being written around 200 AD. Okay. And no one looks at those and thinks that they are a kind of authentic account of what happened in first century AD Judea. Yeah. So that's the, that, that's the question. But having said that, yes, we do have these kind of early sources that clearly, I, I mean, it seems to me, I, I, I can't imagine how anyone really can argue that Muhammad didn't exist. Um, yeah, he, he clearly did. The, these early texts, I mean, this is pretty solid evidence for it. And as I say, we have this one source called the Doctrina Jacobi, and it it describes um, how uh, Saracens, Arabs, um, led by a prophet, have uh, invaded Roman Palestine and defeated the Romans. And it's hard to think who this is a reference to. It doesn't name Muhammad, but it's hard to think who this is referring to, if not Muhammad. But there yeah. is a problem, and there are two problems with it. One is that it's dated to 634, and the tradition, as you as you said, is that Muhammad dies in 632. So yeah. how do we square that? The other is that it describes Muhammad leading an invasion. And the Muslim tradition is absolutely clear that he did not do that, that he dies before the invasion of Palestine, which is the first target. There's probably a good way of answering that, though, isn't there, Tom? Which is that, there um, is. <laughs> well, I mean, one good way of answering it would be he's still alive and he's leading the invasion. But another one would be that the guy who's, who's uh, the, what's it called, the, the teaching of Jacob or whatever. Yeah. That Jacob or whoever it is, is, is it Jacob who's writing it? Is that right? Is that his name? It's complicated. It's Okay. It's, well, whoever yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, who cares who it is? Whoever he is, he's he's repeating a garbled story that he's heard in an age when information travels slowly and, and and incompletely. And he might just have got it wrong or his interlocutor might have got it wrong. Or I think there's a more interesting explanation, which is that um, the, the, the person who, the prophet, the biblical figure who is named more than any other in the Quran is Moses. 
And I've already mentioned that the Hidra, the exile, the Exodus, I mean, that's yeah. what Moses does. He leads his people from Egypt to the promised land. And that's essentially what Muhammad does when he leads his people from Mecca to Medina. Yes. Um, the other thing that for which Moses is famous is that he dies before the children of Israel enter the promised land. And essentially what this, this is a problem if you were casting Muhammad as, you know, the new Moses, which I think is basically what's going on. Mm-hmm. So you can see how that tradition would be erased and you start to construct a tradition in which Muhammad is described as um, like Moses dying before his people enter the promised land. And this focuses attention on something that also that's very interesting, which is that the, the it's clear that Palestine, Jerusalem, the Holy Land, um, the sense of, of belonging to this biblical tradition going back through Jesus, through Moses, um, to, to Abraham is incredibly important. And the fact that uh, Palestine is the first target of, of the invasions doesn't seem to be a, a coincidence. Um, so I think that what happens is that if you look at these early sources, you can kind of work out a way in which there is an emphasis on the Holy Land that in due course comes to fade because the Arab empire comes to embrace a vast range of territories. And essentially what begins perhaps as a movement that is more Jewish, that is more ethnocentric, that is more focused on a holy land, comes to be more Christian, comes to be more universalizing. And what emerges as Islam, and I, I think that, that, that Islam is not kind of something that's served up on a plate by Muhammad to his followers and they then take it out. I think it's something that emerges over the course of the Arab conquests and the, the, the decades that follow, that, it, that it, it emerges to provide the new rulers of this vast empire with an explanation for why God has given them this empire and why they deserve to continue ruling it. Let, let's widen it out a bit because I think we should give a bit of a sense of context because I think we can understand Muhammad and, and that movement to Palestine and all the rest of it more completely if we understand what's going on. Quite often, I think you'll read in a, um, books will say, you know, it's Rome and it's Persia. And then suddenly in the mid seventh century, almost out of nowhere, out of the desert, these guys who no one knew about erupt with this new message of Islam that has just come out of nowhere. And it's this great shock and all the rest of it. And I was always thinking that's not very, um, not a very persuasive or, or, or indeed compelling account of what happened. Cause I think what happened is actually much more interesting. So you've got, I mean, if you think about these two superpowers, so you studied this, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So you at studied university. this. So, so when you, so that was what eighties, nineties, nineties. So, so what we, what were you studying? What were you being told? Well, I did a course that was is famous at Oxford because it was the first course where you didn't have to, where you were allowed to read things in translation. So it was a course it's called the Near East in the Age of Justinian and Muhammad, and and that's part of going to Oxford kind of history law. Not that that's saying very much to people who don't care about Oxford history who listen to the podcast. But it was the first course. Um, previously, you could never do stuff at Oxford if you if you couldn't read the original sources. And um, a great Russian history of Byzantium, I think it was, Dmitry Obolensky, uh, said, you know, this is completely unreasonable because no one's going to arrive at Oxford and be able to read like Armenian, medieval yeah. Armenian or something. Um, so they agreed that they could, you could do this course. And so you did this course, which was Justinian and Muhammad and the world of, you know, the Near East at the time of the fall of, you know, the, the empire in the West has fallen. Uh, Rome is becoming Byzantium. You know, there's going to become this new Islamic world. And, and what I learned, so for me, it was one of the most interesting, and it's why I really wanted to do this subject, actually, because it's one of the most interesting intellectual adventures, um, if I can call it that, that I've kind of been on. Because, of course, you first read the traditional accounts of Muhammad, and then there's this whole historiography, which even then was incredibly, contra- still you know, very controversial. Um, so there was a guy called John Wansborough, uh, American yeah. scholar of, of Islam, and we read that. And, and he basically said, you know, the traditional version is wrong. I mean, you'll know all this, Tom, that the Quran, that Islam is a later creation than everyone thinks, that the Arab conquest kind of happened first. And that it emerges out of the Middle East. And that, yes, exactly. Um, that it emerges out of, um, you know, once they've got the Arab empire, then they need to develop a creed for it, basically. I mean, I'm really simplifying it. And then two of his students, as you will know, 
Patricia Croner and Michael Cook took that on and it got came up with this argument called called book called Hagarism, where they basically argued that you know Islam had begun as a Jewish messianic yeah. movement and then developed a kind of Arab component later on when they decided to ditch the Jewishes. But that was very controversial even in the nineties. I mean, I think when I was studying it, we read that. But then to kind of slightly, it had already been slightly repudiated. The authors themselves had said, well, actually, maybe there was a Muhammad and there was a, you know, the Quran. So, and I think actually, as far as I can tell from the historiography, and I'm not an expert in this by any means, um, people have found engravings and so on, inscriptions. They, they, there's more evidence than people thought for a historic Muhammad. Is that, would you agree with that? No, I, well, I think, I think, I mean, I think essentially what the, the process of the historiography is that you had these two very radical extremes. Muhammad yeah. didn't exist. The Quran was, was compiled. That's you know, the Over the seventh and eighth century. Yeah. Well, that's particularly the, the one's proposition. And then you had the, the traditional account in which Mecca is kind of the Dubai of its day, you know, spice trains and all that kind of stuff. And there's a crisis of capitalism. And basically it's, it's a 1970s. On you know back projection onto seventh yeah. century Arabia, and I think that that both of those have kind of fallen by the wayside. But I think what's what's emerged is an attempt to situate Muhammad within the world of late antiquity as a, as a holy man. And late antiquity is a period where yeah, rich and holy men, very rich and rich and holy men. But um, I, t- I tell you what, why, what, what we should say, Tom, it's rich and holy men because this is a world going through an astonishing trauma. Absolutely. Generally, isn't it? Yes. I mean. You've got so for people who don't who aren't familiar with this incredibly interesting period of late antiquity, you know, tax bases are collapsing because of plague. City, there's been this massive plague in the sixth century. This devastating plague that people say, you know, has killed a third, a half of the world. Maybe exaggeration, but maybe in certain places not. Which, which I think only recently historians have really given the centrality it deserves. And the interesting thing about that relative to what's happening in Arabia is that it hits cities disproportionately. And you have yeah. Arab accounts about it. So it's, the plague is described as, as um, arrows shot by the jinn. So a bit like, you know, Apollo raining arrows on the Greeks uh, in the Iliad. Um, but, but these arrows only hit you if you go, if you come out of the desert. So perhaps there, there's a kind of interesting clue to what's going on that for the first time, there's this kind of you know, the, the the huge imbalance of population between those in the Fertile Crescent and those in the deserts beyond yeah. is starting to, to, to ease down. And then you have the Great War on top well, of that, that. Yeah, this massive war. So, I mean, what are we talking about? Rome and Persia have been the two superpowers for basically, what, 700 years? So they've divided that world between It's 500 them. years, the Sasanians and the, and the Romans. Well, Persia more generally, though, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, going back even further. So they launched this sort of, you know, 30 years war style from 602 to 628, I think it is, which seesaws incredibly. I mean, it's sort of Game of Thrones style war, which the Persians seem to carry all before them. And they capture these provinces, including Jerusalem. Yeah, Egypt, Palestine, and so on, that have been central to the Roman world. And then Heraclius, this extraordinary Roman general, takes the reins emperor. of the, He's the emperor. Yeah, well, he takes the reins yeah. of the empire. And then he goes on these campaigns where he, you know, he, he, he spends winter on campaign, which is great, really sort of groundbreaking. And he basically casts the Persians back, reconquers all this territory. And at that point, if everyone people often say his biographers and people who've written about him say, if only he died. <laughs> yeah. If only he died right then, he would be remembered as one of the absolute all-time great Roman emperors. But of course he doesn't die. And what happens next? Suddenly these fellows all appear out the desert and they take all the provinces that the Romans had had captured back from the Persians. And and so you will then read that the Arabs come and they they defeat the Romans in Palestine. But the question is, what are the Romans? Because, you know, they've been kicked out for ages and the whole apparatus of Roman control has melted away. And what's also interesting is that, that the, both the Romans and the Persians are paying Arabs to essentially kind of serve as, as buffer zones along yeah. the borders. So there's and two when, regimes, aren't there? The yeah. Gas Hassanids and the Lachmids. And when, and, and, and because both, both empires are short of money, Essentially, they're franchising out the, um, the, the the patrolling of the of, of the frontier to these Arabs. When the Romans get kicked out of Palestine, those Arabs have no money coming in, and this is exactly the period at which tradition places Muhammad and 
the the emergence of of this kind of huge army waiting to take over. Now, it's possible that essentially what you have in Palestine after the expulsion of the Persians is kind of like French Vietnam, you know, after the Second World War, that the French are coming back in trying to to resurrect their rule. But essentially their prestige has been demolished and there are very few kind of French troopers there and they, yeah. they get kicked. And essentially what, what is cast by the later tradition as a kind of great invasion may just be a kind of slow implosion in which Arab people, Arabs who previously had been employed as mercenaries essentially kind of move in and don't need the Romans and they just take it over. Yeah. So that, it, it's possible that, that that is what is, is going but it, on. But it's also true, isn't it, Tom, that there's much more interplay between the Arab world and the Roman and Persian worlds than than right. people often think. So the, the common the common version, which is there's this sort of veil of sand behind which these guys have been lurking for hundreds of years and no one's cared about them, and suddenly they erupt and they're these incredible new force, the sort of like the Dothraki arriving in Westeros to go back to our Game of Thrones. But that's not really the case at all. They've been trading with the Romans, they've been working for them, people have been travelling back and forth. I mean, they all knew, and that's where the ideas, the religious ideas, I mean, there are Christians there are Arab Christians, aren't there? There, there are. Um, so, so this is over the past decades. This has been the main focus of trying to understand who or what Muhammad might have been is to recognise, is to try and situate him in that world, in the world of of Persia and and, and Roman rivalry, but also a world that is absolutely teeming with Christian, with Jewish, even with Zoroastrian elements, and perhaps just perhaps with traditions that um, have faded elsewhere, but are still current in the in the deserts beyond Palestine. Um, now, because if you look at the traditional accounts of Muhammad, these biographies that that over the course of the ninth into the tenth century, they become more and more elaborate the further away you go. So they're clearly being, uh, you know, extraneous information is being added to it. A bit like Arthurian romances don't tell you anything really about the context of, you know, late Roman Britain or post-Roman Britain. So likewise, these biographies of Muhammad do not tell you very much about, they don't, they're not really grounded in a recognisable world of late antiquity. You know, there's the odd Christian, there's the odd, um, you know, there's a tribe of Jews who get dealt with at Medina. There's kind of mentions of Heraclius. But by and large, it's, it's, it's not a world that is rich in um, mentions that that we can recognise as being late antique. So the fascination is to try and situate Muhammad in a context that makes sense of him as an early seventh century figure, rather than as someone who right. you know has been constructed basically to to explain things and to justify things that the Muslim rulers and and indeed Muslims more generally in the in the the, uh, the later centuries need him to do. And and so that's that's the challenge. Is do you do you jettison the Islamic tradition completely, and do you only draw on, you know, texts that originate within or, or in the decades after his life? Um, to, or are there elements within the Muslim tradition that you can you can draw on and construct a, a model for? And and there is really there is one there's one key question I think which really underlies this the, the whole problem and it's only a problem for non-muslims so for muslims it's not a problem to explain where the quran comes from it comes from god that's yeah. the essence of what a muslim believes but if you're not a muslim you have to explain how it was that where does the quran come from um the Wandsborough thesis that, that the Quran emerged over the 8th and 9th century I, has been conclusively disproved, I think. I, th- I think it's it's clear that the Quran is associated with someone called Muhammad. And although it takes time for it to, to be compiled, it, it's clear that there are prophet- prophetic utterances that together will constitute the Quran. So therefore, the Quran does provide, I think, evidence for the kind of world in which the historical Muhammad was living. Yeah. But of course, you still have to explain how and why it is that these these texts emerge. And well, Tom, why don't you do that after the break? Well, because I just want to, I just want to okay, s- set up what th- that this is a problem because um, there is no other account we have of where the Quran comes from except the traditional Muslim one. And I, re- I remember being struck by what a problem this is for secular historians. Where I went to an exhibition in the, um, the Metropolitan Museum in New York about Byzantium in early Islam, and the the um, the the 
you know, the labels, the, um, the, the kind of camps in various, you know, the Byzantine rooms were all very secular. So the descriptions of Christian practices were not from a Christian point of view. It was very, very objective, very, very secular. Then you got to the Islam room and there was a collection of early Qurans and there was a kind of billboard talking about the Qurans. And it said the Quran was revealed, you know, the, the revelations that were given to Muhammad by, by God and that came to him by the angel. And that was it. There was no context. There was no attempt to explain what this might mean for someone who doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in angels or even doesn't believe in the specific fact that Muhammad is a prophet of God. Yeah. Um, and likewise, this, this is something that you will find in books by very, very reputable am, um, academics. So there's a book written by uh, Glenn Bowersock, very distinguished ancient historian who wrote a book called The Crucible of Islam, which is, you know, full of brilliant analysis of, of re- religious traditions i mean he does a, a brilliantly kind of skeptical account of the traditional accounts of of the fall of jerusalem to the persians and the way that the romans take it back but when he's writing about muhammad he's got this bold line the revelations that gabriel brought to muhammad came in mecca doesn't elaborate on that doesn't he's asking you know he's saying muhammad gets yeah. it from an angel and leaves it at that well this is a bit like when i did so when i did that course the near east and the age of justin and muhammad i remember saying to my tutor so not about the Islamic element, but actually about icons. Uh, there was a point at which <laughs> a source says an icon repelled an army or something. And I said, uh, uh, but surely I don't, I'm not meant to believe that. <laughs> Am I? I mean, I don't believe icons can repel armies. And I suppose it's the same, but a, but a more fraught problem, I think. I mean, you don't have a problem as a historian saying that an icon can't repel an army or you don't believe that Jesus could do miracles or you don't believe, you know, in the acts of the, 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 the every word of the acts of the apostles. But it is more difficult for a historian to say that of early Islam because you're worried about you know giving offence effectively, effectively. But also, I think it's not just offence. I think upsetting people for whom yeah. the Quran is the, the revelation that's come from God. And if you start, you know, putting it on the the slab of historical inquiry and dissecting it and chopping it up and yeah, you know, well, you'll get it against other things. Then, yeah. then obviously that, that that that's a stressful thing to do. But I think that's not not a reason not to do it because it. I'm sure you know. I mean, I know for a fact that most Muslims are happy to accept that if you're not a Muslim, then of course you have to arrive at an alternative explanation for where the the Quran comes from. And I think it's an expl- I think there are explanations for where it comes from, and I think they're not divorced from Muhammad. So we'll come to that after the break. Yeah. Let's come back after the break. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are um, talking about the life of Muhammad and early Islam. And Tom Holland, you posed before the break this question about the Quran and where the Quran comes from. So there are Quranic fragments, aren't there, um, which have been carbon dated. So there is one in Birmingham, I think it is. Let me get my yeah. my notes. The Birmingham fragment 
is no later than the 640s or so. There's one in uh, Tübingen in Germany, 650s or 660s. So we know that something that elements of the Quran. Well, but, but you see, even even they even they are problematic because that's the that's the latest date. But yeah. The earlier dates, you know, are well into the sixth century. So before supposedly Muhammad has been born. So that's that's a problem. Uh, and the obvious suggestion would the obvious solution to that is that it's it's the manuscript, you know, it's the parchment that's being tested, not the ink. So yeah. this could be fragments. The the problem is whenever you are trying to find absolute kind of solidity, absolute certainty in this field, is it's like wading through through sinking sands. And every time you think you found kind of solid ground, you found it giving it away again. It, it gives away again. But historians of the Quran generally believe, don't they, that the Quran was, um, as it were, sort of enshrined. It was, it was, it was set in stone, as it were, later. That there was, there are bits of it that possibly come from. There are different versions of the same passage, for example, at different points in the text. That the text was edited at some point after Muhammad's death. That must be the case. There are probably as as many um, different versions of of how and why the Quran emerged the way it did, as there are historians writing about it. Um, in fact, I, I thought that this <laughs> would come up, so I armed myself with um, a copy of a book called "The Quran in Its Historical Context," um, and it's the the it's an introductory essay by. Uh, the the great scholar of early Islam, Fred Donner, who's at Ch- Chicago. Um, I'll I'll read it. It's it's a paragraph, but I think it's worth reading because yeah, this is it. the perspective of an absolutely you know accepted standard bearing scholar of this subject. And he opens it by saying, "Quranic studies as a field of academic research appears today to be in a state of disarray. Those of us who study Islam's origins have to admit collectively that we simply do not know some very basic things about the Quran, things so basic that the knowledge of them is usually taken for granted by scholars dealing with other texts. They include such questions as how did the Quran originate? Where did it come from? And when did it first appear? How was it first written? In what kind of language was, is it written? What form did it take? Who constituted its first audience? How was it transmitted from one generation to another, especially in its early years? When, how and by whom was it codified? Those familiar with the Quran and the scholarship on it will know that to ask even one of these questions immediately plunges us into realms of grave uncertainty and has the potential to spark intense debate, which is, yeah, you know, <laughs> putting it. It's a very good way of putting it. Yes. So, because the traditional account of Muhammad's life is the only version that we have, the moment you um, you you question that or you move away from that, essentially. You have to construct a, a model for what might have happened. Yeah, that you know you're you're, you're putting fragments together. You're you're trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle in which large bits are missing, and you can't even be certain what the jigsaw puzzle originally looked like. Um, and so it's not surprising that that basically there are as many different accounts of of how and why the Quran might have emerged and how that might relate to Muhammad and how Muhammad might relate to the context of late antiquity as there are scholars writing about it. And and that is what makes this, I think, uniquely challenging to study. I mean, that's why I basically, the five years I spent on this, my brain ached <laughs> the whole time. But, the, but, but when you finish, so your book is The Shadow of the Sword, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, fascinating book. And you did a TV program or two programs, I think. Was it two programs? Um, just one. Just one. Just one, accompanying it. Um you know, incredibly rich subject that you you clearly had great you know fun doing, although it was a challenge. But you must have come out of it with a sense, you know, however provisional, that you you know if I, I put you on the spot and said, "What do you think the story is?" What would you say? Okay, I think um, I think that Muhammad was a merchant, so I think that that part of the tradition is true. Yeah, uh, you know, we 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 told that by this very early source that you mentioned. Um, he sees himself as standing in the line of Abrahamic prophets. So he's probably so, got that because Judaism is floating around Mecca or the the Arabian Peninsula. It's the ideas of there's yeah, a sort of I, there's a sort of stew of ideas. Come to that in a minute, perhaps. Come to that in a minute. Um, things that we can be certain about. He, I think, he 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 engages in a hijra, an exodus. I think the the ideal of, of the kind of emigration is is fundamental to his history and to uh to the quran so i think yeah. that's that's I, I think that um yathrib is where he sets up 
a community. Um, yeah. And that's both because Yathrib is, is repeatedly mentioned in the contemporary sources by, you know, bishops or whoever who have no particular reason to, to, to lie about that, to distort that. Um, and, and also because um, in uh, the earliest biographies, Muslim biographies of Muhammad, there are preserved fragments of, of what's conventionally called the Constitution of Medina, which is clearly very early texts. That's that a state-building kind of exercise, yes, isn't state it? Yes, state-building. So, so I think that um, Yathrib is clearly central. As you said, there are inscriptions that do seem to kind of tie in with with some of the Muslim accounts about this that have been found. Um, I think that this community um, was interested in expanding. I think it had a kind of um, a, a kind of post-biblical vision that it was interested in spreading. I think Muhammad led the invasion um, of Palestine. I think that he died and I think that his body was taken back to Medina. And I think that um, he then essentially got forgotten for a bit. And we'll come to the reasons why for that perhaps a bit later. But but the the, the issue then is if he's lead if he's founding this this biblically infused informed community, um where does his knowledge of of the Bible come from? What well, were at least these biblical traditions? If, yeah. as the tradition says, he's growing up in Mecca, which is an entirely pagan city, you know, a thousand miles away from where Christians and Jews are, and it seems to me that the story of of Muhammad growing up in Mecca, or what the place we now call Mecca, is the equivalent of Christians saying that Jesus is the son of of, of a virgin. That in both cases, it's an attempt to insulate. The vehicle of the divine in the case of Muhammad, the the you know the, the essence of the divine in the case of Jesus, from the, the the charge that they these are frauds that you know Jesus is the son of a centurion or something that mm-hmm. you know, Mary got pregnant in perfectly normal manner, uh, or, or Muhammad that his you know he's influenced by the context of the world that he's living in, and the reason why that has to be guarded against is because it might imply that these traditions these elements within the quran might have come from the context of the of of the broader world in which muhammad has been born now that of course is you know this this is where the tension between history and belief kind of locks horns because if if you're if you're a believer then of course it comes from god that's that's the essence of your belief but if you're not a believer then of course you know you're going to say well look at this text you know, there are all these elements. They they clearly come from Christian, Jewish, often you know even older traditions. And then you have to ask yourself, well, how and why did they did Muhammad come to to absorb them? Or, so, or, so one of the words, obviously, the key things in this is Mecca. Is the idea is is yeah. what what where Mecca fits in because Mecca is a is a is a trading town. Um, it has well, fairs, it has markets. It people go. We, how, but how do we know that? Well, um. This is, our, this is our guiding assumption anyway. Now, one of the things that people like historians like Patricia Croner have pointed to in the Quran that they say they have raises questions is that Muhammad talks it talks in, in the Quran about his foes being people who have, um, they, they grow, you know, vines, they have date palms, they have sheep and cows and things like that, that basically people probably didn't have in Mecca, which is a problem. Right. It, it, yes, it is a problem. So, um, so some historians say, well, that suggests that the traditional be- assumption that all this is happening in Mecca must be wrong. That if they've got all these sheep and cows, it must be happening further north, well, um, the, which would bring it closer to the world of Palestine and the Roman world, where the ideas could be coming from. And particularly olives. And the, the kind of olive that's referred to is only grown kind of within the much closer to the Mediterranean. So that right. does, so, so that's, a, I think, is a problem. And I think also the the fact that it was argued by Gerald Horting in a in a kind of epical book um, that people who are called the Mushrikin in, uh, in in the Quran uh, who practice what's called shirk, which is kind of associating um, deities or perhaps angels with with God, and this is their crime. Um, yeah. And the tradition is, is that this is paganism; that they are worshiping gods and goddesses from you know pagan arabia but horting's argument is that um actually muhammad or the prophet or whoever the author of the quran is 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 
calling them idolaters in the way that pro- that Protestants might call Catholics idolaters. Um, you know, Protestants might call Catholics pagans. Um, at, that doesn't mean that Protestant Catholics aren't both Christian. They, they they clearly are. So the the argument is that actually what the Quran bears witness to is um, essentially an argument about the biblical God that's over issues like should, you know, to what extent, what is the proper relationship of angels to, to, to God? Yeah. And that this is what Muhammad is, or the prophet or whoever he is, is getting exercised by. So there's a world of Abrahamic religion and that this is an argument within that, basically, rather yes. than a, rather than importation of a Abrahamic religion into a world where people are worshipping pagan idols of some other kind. Yes, essentially. Um, and, and so that raises a couple of questions that people asked about. So some of our regulars, and one of our regulars, Stefan Jensen, has asked about Muhammad's message and Christian theology. And Sascript has asked about similarities between Judaism and Islam. So it is perfectly obvious to anybody, Muslim or non-Muslim, that Islam is 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 in the well, it's in the same sort of religious universe, shall we say, as Judaism and Christianity. So, so Muslims, yeah. you know, Abraham plays a part, Moses plays a part, Jesus plays a part, although Muslims don't believe he was the son of God. So do you think well first, do you think Islam do you think it's come out of, I mean, there's an argument that's come out of this sect, which are called the Jewish Christians, which is a very sort of, will seem very obscure to some of our listeners. Well, for, for, for Muslims, for Muslims, Islam provides a template by which to judge whether Judaism and Christianity are, are, are corrupted. Because is, yeah. Jesus, Moses, Abraham are all Muslim. Um, they, they they all preach the same message. And the, deg- the degree to which... Um, Jewish scripture and Christian scripture no longer uh, accords to that is a reflection of the degree to which they've been corrupted. So for Muslims, you, 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 you judge kind of backwards through time, which obviously is not a, a technique that, that historians generally use. For a historian, the fact that you have a body of text with Jewish and Christian elements obviously means that they have to come from Jewish and Christian sources. Yeah. Now the, the 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 Jewish and Christian elements within the Quran are are often quite confusing to those brought up in Jewish and Christian traditions. Um and they seem to reflect perspectives that are often quite ancient. So the argument uh I say about the divinity of Jesus yeah. is is one that goes right the way back to you know the beginnings of Christianity, um, and again and again in the Quran, you find elements of theological battles that elsewhere in the in in the the world had had basically been settled. But Tom, and, isn't that, and so that's, that's why it's so, that's why it's so hard to know where the, where these elements are coming from. But I would say that seems completely to a non-Muslim, to a skeptical historian, that would seem completely explicable. This is a, a peripheral part of the Roman world. Um, it's it's a, you know it's a sort of it's it's a world that has been you know the, the rest of the world has been blighted by plague. You know the, the empire has suffered serious traumas. Um, Syria desert and so on has been a place where holy men and sects and things have always flourished. It would seem not in not weird at all to me. That at the end of the what are we talking about? The end of the sixth century or whatever, beginning of seventh, yeah, yeah. There are all kinds of ideas floating around that might seem very old-fashioned to people in Constantinople, like Jesus was not actually the Son of God. But he these are these are these and- are massively, massively heretical, and also they they confuse Jewish and Christian traditions. And what's happened over the course of late antiquity essentially is a process of of both rabbis and bishops and church fathers digging trenches and pulling yeah. people back from the no man's land and what you seem to get with the quran is a text where these trenches have been erased and these different traditions are mixing and mingling again um but you've got to ask well, you know how and why are these traditions suddenly kind of coming to life i mean it's like you know it's like discovering a, a kind of jurassic park of <laughs> of theologies you know th- these these they shouldn't really be around. Um, so, and there's a question from uh, Polite Parrot, splendidly named. <laughs> Was Muhammad really illiterate? So 
this is the tradition. Um, there, there's a, a verse in the Quran that, that implies that he might be, but equally it can be reinterpreted. It. And what you do get through the Quran is a massive respect for, for texts. Yeah. Um, the whole of creation is described as a text. Um, and it, it, it may be that, you know, that, that there are kind of echo, people, scholars have found echoes of the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, in the Quran. You know, are people digging up these scrolls? You know, are they finding scrolls in the, the deserts beyond? It's not I mean, we don't, is it? it's, it's not so impossible. difficult. I mean, you, you feel that you're straying into Dan Brown territory with, with yeah. this kind of, but it's, it's very difficult to know. And, you know, I think essentially you have to kind of throw your hands up and say, well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think, sure. I mean, um, my scenario would be, you know, it's a very, conf- it's a, it's a world that seems to have lost its moorings to some extent. Well, it's, it's um, apocalyptic. It's an apocalyptic. The other thing about world. the Quran is that it's, yeah. it's very apocalyptic. It's an apocalyptic it's world. Apocalyptic. It feels like the end of days. The, yeah. the, the two great powers that have, that have really structured this world for not just for as long as anyone can remember. I mean, stretching back. Of hundreds of years these two great powers are in kind of meltdown um there's been a plague which people can probably remember or at least they can it's remember ongoing. they can remember that yeah i mean so the end of the world feels like it's around muhammad is a as you said in your brilliant sort of overview he's a business agent for a, a, a well-to-do businesswoman he's traveling. Well, we don't know that that's late but we okay. know he's a merchant but let's imagine that he yeah. is we- he's traveling He's hearing yeah. a lot of different ideas. He gets to 40 and, you know, either he receives a divine revelation, which you believe if you're a Muslim or if you're a skeptical historian, secular historian, you think he puts all this together, all these ideas that are floating Convinced around. Convinced that he is a prophet. I mean, yeah. I think there's no doubt about that. I think he, he must believe that he's a prophet. And what's clear is that, that the people around him think he's a prophet as but well. But there's also what's interesting is that the, the, the time is right. The market is there because... Absolutely. Yes. You know, the, the Arabs have always been brilliant, mobile sort of cavalry, but never been united. Spent a lot of time fighting each other. They've been hiring themselves out as effectively for the mercenaries, for the Romans and the Persians. Suddenly the Romans and the Persians have fallen apart. And if only the, the Arabs can kind of get their act together and unite around something that makes them transcend their differences, you know, the world is their oyster. And I think it may be even more complicated than that. So I think that some of the Arabs may be directly inspired by Muhammad's teaching. But I think others may be, you know, they're just kind of moving in and taking what they can get. Well, why and, wouldn't you? I mean, Palestine yeah, is right there with absolutely. all its... Yeah. Well, and so and so is Iraq, uh, so is Syria. And you kind of just move in, you, and, and suddenly then Egypt's fallen and you find that you've got, you know, it's like kind of overboiled chicken falling off the bones. Just, you know, you're just picking it off. Yeah. And and then you you have to explain how this has happened because this is an age where nothing happens without God wanting it to happen. And... I, What's what's fascinating about the early years of of um, the Arab rule of of the Fertile Crescent and beyond is that Muhammad then vanishes, so he 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 does not get mentioned. He doesn't appear on scriptures. He doesn't appear on coins. Nobody seems to talk about him. Uh, and then what happens is that uh, you have a civil war, and basically people are fighting over the empire. You know, who's going to who's going to yeah. claim the mantle of you know the, the gods established himself as God's favorite, God's deputy. And you have a guy called Ibn, um, Ibn al-Zubayr, who occupy, we're told occupies um, the house of God somewhere in the desert. And one of the guys in the civil war is a bloke called Ibn um, al-Zubayr. And we're told by a contemporaneous source, he came to a certain locality in the South where they're, they're the, you know, the Muslims, their sanctuary was and lived there. So it doesn't specify where it was, but somewhere in the desert. And, this sanctuary gets destroyed in a siege. Uh, Ibn Elzebiah fights on. Uh, the sanctuary gets destroyed again. Um, but at some point, one of Ibn Elzebiah's allies in Iran issues a coin. And on that coin is the first mention of Muhammad that you get in an Arabic text. So what date is this, roughly? This is about 685, 686. Okay. And it's... By doing this, Ibn al-Zabiyah is able to claim a divine sanction for himself because he's able to say, I am following in the footsteps of the prophet of God. And by yeah. doing that, he immediately dignifies his kind of sectarian role, basically. Meanwhile, there's another guy in Palestine, in Syria, and, and specifically in Jerusalem called Abdul Malik. And Abdul Malik picks up on this and recognizes that, you know, it's great to lay claim to this mantle. And he casts himself as 
So he builds the Dome of the Rock, the first kind of emergent Muslim building to have survived, really. Yeah. Uh, and there are these inscriptions on it that are very anti-Trinitarian, so opposed to the idea that, you know, Jesus is the son of God, that one is three, three is one, um, proclaiming Muhammad as as this one God's prophet. Uh, and he starts to issue coins as well that um, that, that mention Muhammad. And Abdul Malik casts himself as um, the deputy of God, the caliph. Uh, and seems, you know, I mean, a man of... of immense self-confidence, pretty convinced that he is as significant a figure as Muhammad himself is. But he wins in the civil war, defeats Ibn al-Zubayr, establishes, um, the, you know, a kind of a, a universal role over the rule over the Arab empire. And it's under Abdul Malik that you start to get the massive proclamation of Muhammad as a prophet of God. Um, it seems the codification of the Quran, uh, it seems the the initial proclamation of the place that we would now call Mecca as having been Mecca, as having been the, the site of the sanctuary of God. Um, and all of this kind of package, it's from the reign of Abdul Malik that you can start to see something that, that we will recognize as Islam emerging um, and taking the form that, you know, that it, it, it's had ever since. And this is at a time, though, Tom, when there would have been people who could remember Muhammad, right? I mean, if they were old. They were very old. So we're talking about, you're talking about what, the 680s, did you say, or so? Yes. Um, so if Muhammad died in 632, it's yes, plausible there could people. be some but, old but, people would, or, or there would be sons of people who certainly could have remembered him. But equally, there are probably very few. Um, and so that therefore enables uh, people to kind of, you know, you have a slightly blanker palette than, yeah. than you might otherwise have done. Um, you know, and this is, this is the, the, the Arabs at this stage are not writing stuff down, or if they are, it, it hasn't survived. They're not writing accounts. So it's it, these are all accounts. Uh, and this is an age when um, basically traditions can be started almost from scratch. I mean, this is, you know, the famous example is Christians turning up in the Holy Land and kind of identifying all these places as the bush, you know, the bush where Moses, yeah, you know, the burning bush or, uh, you know, this house is where St. Peter lived or whatever. Um, the same thing happens with Jewish traditions. The same thing happens with Zoroastrian traditions. And there seems no reason why the same thing can't, can't have happened with, with what becomes Muslim traditions. Because the truth is, is that the first mention of Mecca isn't until the middle of the 8th century. And even then it's placed somewhere in, in the Fertile Crescent in Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, and the location of the, the house of God, which is clearly crucially important, is presumably where Muhammad went on Hijra from is presumably the place that Ibn al-Zabar is going to, but we're told it gets destroyed. It gets destroyed twice over. So if it's been leveled, the task of rebuilding it and perhaps locating it somewhere else in a place that the, the Umayyads, the family from which um, uh, Abdul Malik comes from, becomes much easier. And I don't think that it would be a kind of deliberate fraud. It's just, you know, rather like you know, Olympus was a place that kind of lots of identified with lots of mountains before it settled on the mountain we now call Olympus or Camelot, you know, yeah. lots of locations for Camelot, that there are lots of places, lots of different traditions, perhaps associated with Muhammad. Perhaps Muhammad did have an association with the place that comes to be Mecca. But essentially, it's it's a time, these decades from, you know, the lifetime of Muhammad through the kind of 50 years that follow are a period where everything is up for grabs and the concrete is not yet set. And the guy who shapes and moulds the story. So I think there's a question somewhere about, you know, is there someone who's equivalent of St. Paul? I mean, basically, yes. Abdul Malik is the equivalent of St. Paul and Constantine. He's the person who is establishing Muhammad as the prophet of a god who has also given his sanction to the rule of Abdul Malik and, and the Arabs over the, over the empire of the world, um, but who is also kind of canonizing the story of Muhammad, the story of his relationship to, um, to, to a shrine and the story of his relationship to the Quran in a way that will then endure and, and pass down. And right. the early, you know, the early accounts get erased. Before we, we've, we've already talked for probably far too long, but before we come to an end, let's just talk a little bit about Muhammad's reputation later. So Muhammad obviously has, has run, you know, he, he's a figure who has resounded through history, not just for Muslims, but for non-Muslims too. And I know you've got a couple of good examples of people who um, wrote about Muhammad afterwards. So Carlyle, I think, is one of your examples, isn't it? Well, before that, for, for Christians, they have no sense of Muhammad as, as a 
prophet or a founder of a, a different religious tradition. They see him as a, as a schismatic. So right. in in uh, Dante, that's that's the fate. He's sentenced to be torn to pieces, at what reassembled point did, and torn did, to pieces again. At what point, um, Tom, did people stop thinking of Islam as a sort of uh, did Christians, sort of Romans? At what point did they stop thinking of Islam? Because well, at first they clearly thought of Islam as this sort of weird heresy. Jewish heresy, exactly. But at what point do they do they say it's not? It, it's a religion in its own right that's got a rich tradition and all this sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it, it, into the uh, beginning of the early the early modern period, and then through the Victorian period, people get fascinated by Muhammad. So, you, as you say, Carlyle writes um, write, writes a life of him and kind of enshrines him as the model of a great man. Yeah, uh, and and then you also have other other historians who who kind of try and do the life and times style approach. So, putting Muhammad in the context of the age. But that's where you get all the traditions of him as a merchant living and Mecca as a kind of great merchant city and all this kind of thing, um, which then gets picked up by by Muslim scholars. So there's a sense in which the the model of, of Muhammad today is quite a, a westernized one. Um, and there are lots of sco- uh, Muslims, of course, who recognize that and who want to go back to an original, you know, strip away, you know, yeah. get out the paint stripper. Um, but. There's a, there's a brilliant description of what they're doing by um, a scholar called Kater Ali, who's written a wonderful book about the afterlife of Muhammad and the way that both Muslims and non-Muslims have understood him. And says about that texts written symbolically came to be read literally. And I think that's that's the problem, is that there's so much about Muhammad that gets is now taken as a kind of literary, literal, historical account in the Muslim tradition. Whereas, in fact, it it for most of, of, of Islamic history... Muhammad is, the, you know, he's the beloved of God. He's the, the, the man who, that's why he's loved. Um, and the kind of attempt to see him as a historical figure is much more of a Western project. So there yeah, is a kind of got tension got, there, I think. And it's one the, that obviously is focused in Western countries. It's a quest so, for the historical Jesus, isn't it? It's very not dissimilar. Absolutely, I mean, yes. You know, yeah. the attempt to historicize Christ. And, and, and so that whole tradition, in a way, is a kind of Christian one because it's bred of the Christian desire to to make sense of Jesus and the Bible historically. And people then using those techniques then apply it to the Muslim tradition, which is why, I, I mean, inevitably, I think it kind of can raise hackles among Muslims because you're applying an alien tradition. I'm permanently in awe of your ability to, no matter what the subject, to seamlessly... <laughs> make a very convincing argument that it all comes back to uh, to your excellent book, Dominion, about the Christian tradition. There you are. I've done the plug for you. Thank you. Um, uh, if only I could find a way to link all subjects to the uh, second premiership of Harold Wilson in the 1970s. But, but of course, when, when, when and if you come to write um, your book on the latter years of the uh, Thatcher yeah. premiership and into the major premiership, if you, I hope you'll do that, um, then, of course, debate's over. The relationship yes. historical Muhammad to um, to how people have interpreted and misinterpreted him yeah. absolutely becomes a part of contemporary British history because you've got the Stanic verses and you've got everything that goes on from that. So the, I hope the, that you, the, you too will engage with this fascinating topic. The quest for the historic Margaret Thatcher. Well, that's a, a religious <laughs> subject to turn to on another occasion. Right. I hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your comments. Uh, what are we doing next time, Tom? Uh, we're doing uh, Magna Carta, I think. So King John's partisans will have very strong views about that. And let's hope we don't get cancelled for it. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. 
We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. 